If you live in the eastern United States, you probably recognize this sound. That's the sound a cicada makes when it crawls out into the world after more than a dozen years underground. Although cicadas live in much of the world, most species are found in the tropics. A few species in the eastern U.S. have this strange life cycle where they live underground for up to 17 years. Underground cicadas are juveniles, and they support their growth by sucking sap out of plant roots. Once they're done feeding and growing, they emerge from the ground all at once, millions of them. Above ground, they immediately climb the nearest tree, molt into their adult forms, and then get down to making babies. The infamous sound is basically a cicada serenade meant to attract females, and it can get pretty noisy. Ain't that sexy? If you're in Pennsylvania, Ohio, or West Virginia, you might hear them later this year, probably around May or June. That population last emerged in 2002. This bizarre life cycle has earned cicadas a lot of fans, scientists and non-scientists alike. But it's not the only amazing thing about these critters. Hidden away inside their cells is something equally bizarre, a symbiosis with bacteria. Inside a set of specialized cells, many cicadas house bacteria that make essential amino acids. These are the amino acids that cicadas can't produce on their own. In return, the cicadas provide bacteria with the place to live and the nutrients they need to support their own populations. This association has been so stable for so long that the bacteria have effectively become part of the cicada. Or maybe the cicada has become part of the bacteria. The lines are blurred, and there's no way for either species to survive on its own. Amazingly, this symbiosis turns out to reveal some important clues about some of the most ancient and important symbioses of all, mitochondria and chloroplasts. In February, we interviewed John McCutcheon, a biologist at the University of Montana who studies insect-bacteria relationships, partly to understand the evolution of mitochondria and chloroplasts. So what we study, I mean, the reason we think it's interesting is because, because of all the parallels. So mitochondria are hard to study for a couple of reasons. One of them is they're 1.8 billion years old. The other one is they'd only happened once. And so the things, that, the things that we study, I mean, they're not exactly the same, but they're, they're a close enough parallel that it seems, it seems worthwhile. Like, so so what, we can, what we can say is we can draw generalities about really old endosymbiosis that were you know, a little bit clear with mitochondria and chloroplasts, but now I think become much more clear if you add in a few more examples. We interviewed John in front of a live audience at the Missoula Insectarium in Montana. He explained how bacteria that live inside cicada cells can teach us about the evolution of multicellular life. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Um, so I just wanted to start and ask, uh, this is an entomological crowd, uh, about um, your work on bark beetles and the fungi that are associated with them, and, and maybe just tell us about that, that symbiosis, and what, what do the partners do, and what does it do for both of them? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a good place to start because we're in Montana, and people care about bark beetles. They, they kill a lot of our trees. Um, and the, the, I think the, the thing to understand is it's a nutritional relationship, right? So bark beetles eat trees, but animals actually can't eat trees, right? You can't, they can't extract nutrients from trees. And so what bark beetles have done, and ambrosia beetles, which are related, uh, are develop these relationships with, in, in the case of these beetles, fungi, that they, the mom basically bores a hole into the tree and lays down 
lays down some fungal spores, those, those fungi grow, and then the baby beetles, when they emerge from these tubes, eat the combination of wood and fungus, or just fungus, depending on the species. And that allows these insects to extract the nutrients from the trees. Uh-huh. So, so, the, so, so the fungi are doing some of the work of getting the nutrients. The, the fungi out of the are trees. doing some of the work yeah. of of getting the nutrients out of the trees. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. it's just if it's just a beetle boring into a tree, it's not going to work. Uh-huh. Beetles can't they can't digest the cellulose. They can't get any nutrients from that. Uh-huh. So so how do the fungi do it? And why well, why can the fungi do it? And the beetles because can't? microbes are microbes are metabolically diverse and animals aren't. Uh-huh. Yeah. Animals I, I really thought he was going to say metabolically superior, but that's okay. I mean, superior is a, that's that's actually it that's like actually said, true. I mean, that's where you're you going. Know, yeah, no, it's true. We can animals can barely eat anything, right? We have to eat other things. Yeah, right. All right, so we can't eat the sort of foundational products in, in the on, on the on the earth, right? Yeah. So we can't, you know, we can't fix carbon dioxide the way microbes can. We can't fix nitrogen into usable sources the way microbes can. We can't do any of that stuff. So we what, have to what eat. you're saying is we're pretty lame, really. We're big, but we're lame. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so how, how does something like that originate? If you try to imagine the original beetles picking up the original fungus, how, how does that happen? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I mean, so what I do know is that, you know, so if, if you look at all insects, including the, most, I mean, so we work on, we've worked on ambrosia beetles a little bit, but we mostly work on these sap feeding insects. But we work on, we work on insects that have these weird diets, right? And so if you look at insects with weird diets, restricted diets, things that only eat sap from trees, things that only eat wood, uh, you can't do that. And so that wasn't the sort of the beginning state, the ancestral state for these insects. They evolved from insects that ate other, in the most cases, they ate other things, right? Mm-hmm. So they, there were insects around. There were beetles around before there were ambrosia beetles. And before that, they were, they, they had sort of generalist diets, right? They ate other in, insects. They ate other kinds of parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. But to evolve this wood-feeding uh, life cycle is, is specialized. And you need to pick up a fungus, in this case, to do that. Mm-hmm. So it was, some, it was some weird thing where... A fungus was along and it was doing something and uh, hey all of a sudden this is actually pretty good we can eat we can live here we can eat this wood maybe we should form a team and then so that relationship becomes kind of formalized over evolution yeah time. it gets sometimes it becomes it gets obligate stuck. yeah yeah so, sometimes it gets stuck yeah, and sometimes yeah. it works out for both partners right sometimes right. it doesn't but but uh that's yeah. in general what, what happens yeah. okay so what kind of service sorry i gotta yeah. stick with the beetles for just a second what um what kind of service is the fungus providing is it just sugars are they doing amino acids or both i mean it's not actually it, it depends i mean in some cases it's like in the ambrosia beetles it's the entire nutrition so ambrosia means like you know what the food nectar of the, of the gods, gods yeah. yeah right and so in, in that case those beetles only eat the f- they eat the fungal spores basically so if you if you the really cool pictures if you look in these galleries the when the baby fun, when the baby beetles uh hatch from the eggs they just basically eat the tops off the fu- off the fungal hmm. off, off the fungal uh spores and so that, that's like all the nutrition is concentrated in that in that structure and they don't eat the wood at all anymore Huh. Right, bark beetles are sort of hybrids. They eat the they eat the fungus and the wood. So it's concentrating the nutrients. It's making the nutrients accessible. Uh, all those sorts of things. Okay. Probably some role in detoxification. It depends. They do a lot of different things. It's sort hmm. of complicated and difficult. Is this just one fungus that's doing this? No, a there's, a, there's a okay. bunch of them. Yeah, there's a okay. bunch of them. Hmm. So, so I think this is a good segue maybe into talking about sap-feeding insects and specifically cicadas. So cicadas, I mean, let's just talk about cicadas for a little while. So they also eat really crappy food. So, so what, yeah, what's their life cycle and what, what do they eat? Terrible. They're, they're, I would say they're the, the world, they have the world's worst diet oh. in general. <laughs> wow. Uh, they, so, so 
sap feeding insects are they're they're insects that just I should feel like I should look at the crowd. Sorry, <laughs> don't, don't look at us. There's nobody else here. There's nobody I'm else ignoring here. you. I'm sorry, uh, but sap feeding insects have piercing sucking mouth parts, so they just poke holes and suck, and that's all they do. So they eat sap from trees, xylem sap, which is the sap that comes from the ground, phloem sap, which is the sap that comes from the leaves and gets sugary. Uh, in the case of cicadas, they only eat xylem, which is it's like the, the sap. worst of the worst. It's the right? worst of the worst. It's like, yeah, it's it's just basically water with a little bit of stuff in it. It's really terrible. And then there's there's lots of sap feeding insects that eat phloem sap, which is just like Sprite. Right? And, it's, and I know there's Marginally no real better. kids in the crowd, but if you have kids, they will want to be raised to on Sprite, yeah. but they will die if you do that because there's no, there's no nutrition in it. Right? And sap feeding insects are the same way. So you cannot grow an animal just eating sap. All right. So, so what do they do to get around this? They've developed these partnerships with bacteria and, and fungi in some cases, uh-huh. but probably bacteria at the beginning okay. to make the nutrients... That, that is, that is not the, the nutrients that are not in their diet and um, they can't make because yeah, they're animals. Yeah, yeah. So, so they've got a special, if I understand it right, they've got a specialized structure the cicadas do mm-hmm. inside their bodies mm-hmm. called a bacteriome. That's right. So what, what is that? A bacteriome, ohm just means tissue. So it's a, it's a tissue full of bacteria, bacteriome. And it's, uh, so if you, if you take a look inside of a cicada, which we, you can do in Missoula, we, we have a few species. There's not very many, but you can do it. And if you catch one and you cut it open from cut it open from head to abdomen and look look in a, in a female at least uh, above the ovaries, there's two paired organs. And in, in cicadas, it looks like a bunch of grapes, like you get at the store. And th- that bunch of grapes is the bacterium. They're little balls, and those balls are full of insect cells. And each one of those insect cells is stuffed full of bacteria. So the bacteria are literally inside the. They're insect living cells. inside these insect cells. Yeah, okay. it's the only place they live. These awesome. bacteria. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Is there any uh, theory about why they might be so close to the ovaries? I mean, it because must, yeah, proximity of moving. Yeah, because that's how they transmitted to the yeah, babies. Yeah, so okay. each yeah, each generation, each little cicada egg gets a little packet of bacteria. Okay. It's it happens every single time. There's a little. We've taken pictures of it a ton of times because we've studied that. But each little egg gets a little packet. Wow. Okay. So they have awesome. to be sort of close. So cicadas, is there? Something about being a cicada that disposes them to eating this really crappy diet and no, living underground yeah, and there's doing a this bunch, weird emergence there's, there's, type there's of thing? Re- there's, a, there's a ton of sap-feeding insects. Mm-hmm. Um, cicadas are sort of weird because they happen to live underground, right? And they're sucking the xylem sap from roots for between 2 and 17 years, and then they emerge. The ones we see above ground have been underground for at least two years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's weird. But, but mostly sap-feeding insects just, yeah, all of them do this. They all suck either xylem or phloem sap. Okay, yeah. and they're all using some version of this bacteria. They're all using they're using different bacteria. Actually, there's a lot of there's a huge diversity of bacteria in these insects. The cicadas ha- happen to have a certain two mm-hmm. uh, that that we work on, but two plus sometimes a fungus. Um, but yeah, that's the, all these sap feeders do this. Yeah, aphids. Okay. You see aphids in the trees mm-hmm. in the summer. They they get that sticky stuff that rains down in your car. Yeah. Those have one bacterial endosymbiont, and they're doing the same thing. They're making. They're making the nutrition accessible for these insects. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I want to come back to the nutritional aspects, but I want to diverge off for a moment onto these super long life cycles. So you've got, you said up to 17 years. That's, is that magic cicada? Is that the that's really magic, long one? Yeah, that's oh, yeah. the genus. Yeah, magis, and, 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 there, and there are species that have other really long underground periods. So why are they so long? And why are they prime numbers? I don't right? know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I, I think really close numbers, to failing this exam, John. Yeah, I think, I think the prime <laughs> numbers, well, I'm trying to be honest. Like, it, <laughs> That's good. It, you'd make up something. <laughs> and people have made up things, but it, I don't think it really, so the prime numbers, I think it's kind of a coincidence. Um, oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, because because there <laughs> seems to be something about four-year life cycles. So you've got 13, 9, and then what's 9 minus 4? Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, maybe there is. Well, that's not, yeah. Anyway, so there's something about, I don't, I don't know. I mean, people have people have said it's, it's, I don't think it has anything to do with being prime. It has to do with something with being okay. long. Uh. But the it's probably predator avoidance huh. uh, in the sense that, if you're a predator that's trying to feed on something, so cicadas are, are a great source of food if you can find them, right? But if they live in, the, if you're in the eastern United States and you have these big, giant, magic cicada emergences where they're just enormous numbers of cicadas, that's awesome if you want to eat that. The problem is they come up every 17 years. So if you're, if you're a predator that's dependent on that, you better be able to count or wait or both. And that's really hard to do, right? So it's not, it's not a reliable food source. I think that's probably it. But so, so this is kind of an animal version of like trees masting, would you say? Yeah, maybe like something. Kind of flooding yeah. the environment with propagules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but it could be. And, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. All right. People are trying to find, trying to understand how this happens. You can see switch between 13 and 17. Um, hmm. You can see, you know, hmm. 13s, you can see 13s going to 9. Um, they, every once in a while. So there seems to be a four-year thing. Nine's not prime, so, yeah. you know, that's yeah. what I was saying. It kind of blows my theory right yeah, there. Yeah, it kind of blows so. the theory, but but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really know. The, I don't know how they're able to count at 17. I don't know how they're able to count by four years. Yeah. It is pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's so it's this, it, you're saying it's the same population that can go from 13 to nine? Yeah, so individuals within that can, it, can it, they can be off by one year, very yeah. rarely. They can, or they can switch. There's 13-year cicadas that go to 17 and then 17 that go back to 13 okay and, and is over, there over it any, anything about the environment or what people have ideas about what's instigating those shortenings <sighs> I, I don't know no okay yeah, okay I, don't know. I think that'll be the theme there, for our podcast uh, yeah well yeah but, but, but it's, it's a noble thing to just say i don't know that's not a typical know. thing of I mean, science it's it, all the time yeah, <laughs> let me just come up with something no you can you, I, I appreciate the questions i just i don't yeah. know everything yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me let, before yeah, yeah. before we did. So this is big biology. We're going to quickly move from insects to big biology. Um, but before we get there, I want to know about Chile. Why you? So you said cicadas are right here in the backyard. And I, yeah. When I was in grad school, we had one of the emergences, and it was where, absolutely where was amazing that? in Princeton. Yeah. So, so it, it was it, super cool mm -hmm. because the magic cicadas orange and black, mm -hmm. and so you know it was perfect. It was the All year right. that I graduated. Cicadas came out just for me. It was really, really, really nice. Um, but but why do you go all the way to Chile to work on something that's right here? Yeah. No, that's a good question. And, and bef uh, I mean, basically, so. When I was a I was a postdoc at the University of Arizona, it doesn't matter, but it's in Tucson, Arizona, and I was in my office, and I had I was a I was trained as a computational biologist and a biochemist. So what that means is I had never been in the field in my life, and I was in a <laughs> I was in an ecology and evolution department, and like that's the kind of it's the kind of place where people would show up in khaki pants and like fedoras and stuff, like they had just been in the field. And I I was like, what are they doing? And and so I was working on these insects. I started working on these insects, and and I liked cicadas. I grew up in the Midwest, and we had, I'd, I'd experienced at least one you know, big emergence. And cicadas are neat. And there were a bunch of cicadas every summer in Tucson. And we were working on related insects. So I kind of asked my advisor, I said, Nancy, what do you, should, I, should we go catch some of those? She's like, yeah, those are really interesting. We should go do that. So I went out across the street <laughs> and had a, took a net 
and I, I was out there for like four hours, and it was 100 degrees, and I didn't catch a single insect. <laughs> and, I, and I walked back, and I was deeply humbled uh, by how difficult field work is. I, I was my first, across the street from my office, it was my first experience with it. Was really, it's really challenging stuff. Um, but I eventually caught one, and then maybe a few, and we, we started working on the Tucson cicadas. And there was, it doesn't matter, but there was something really weird about the endosymbiont. So we, we sequenced the endosymbiont genomes. We learned some stuff. One of them was really weird kind of file that away. And then, as I was leaving the lab, we started working on these long periodical cicadas. Same kind of thing, we were just trying to understand what was going on. And we couldn't get an answer for, I thought, technical reasons. It was, the sequencing seemed like I had done something wrong. And I had done enough things wrong in that lab that I didn't want to really say anything. I, <laughs> like another $10,000 mistake. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. So I didn't really say anything, but, but when we got here, when I started my lab here at the University of Montana, we had, there was that weird thing about that one from Tucson, and we were trying to go back in the lab and, and screen a few more species to try to understand that. So there was a process that was going on that we didn't understand. And, and we just happened to get, so we have a collaborator at the University, University of Connecticut, Chris Simon, who's kind of the world expert in cicadas. And she had sent a few a smattering of cicadas to the lab to, so we could do our thing. And one of them happened to be from Chile, and it, it, it took James Van Leuven, the student in my, the graduate student in my lab at the time, was working on it. It took James um, a long time, and it, we couldn't figure it out, but this, something really weird had happened to this thing. We just sort of found it accidentally. We were looking for something else. We found this weird thing accidentally, and it happened to be um, in a species from Chile that hadn't been studied much in a long time. And so that got us going. So we eventually, someone from the lab or someone from our collaborator's lab has been back Chile, I think six years, six years in a row now. Hmm. Hmm. Um, we we sampled most of the diversity of this species in Chile because it because the biology of the endosymbiont is really interesting. So it was almost, it was just an accident. It was because I started working on cicadas and we sort of found this thing by accident and happened to be from a Chilean cicada. Okay. Turns out we didn't have to go that far. We could have just done the ones in the backyard here, but we didn't know it at the yeah, time. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank okay. God yeah. you didn't know that. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Chile in December is not yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I want to get to the weirdness of, of these ones that you you found inside the cicadas, but let's, let's set the stage a little bit by talking about amino acids yeah, and right. essential amino talked, acids right. and sort of like what, what these bacteria altogether are doing. For right. We cicadas. haven't talked, I've mentioned yeah. nutrition, but I haven't yeah. told you what the nutrition is. So so the, the problem with sap is that it doesn't have enough essential amino acids to grow an animal, right? And so our bodies are made of proteins, for the most part, other things, but proteins. Uh, those proteins are built from 20 amino acids. Half of those amino acids we can make with just simple building blocks. Half of those amino acids we can't make, animals can't make, all animals. Those are called the essential amino acids. Those are things, they're essential to get in your diet. Otherwise, you'll die. And doesn't that strike you as a little bit outrageous that we can't make yeah, animals these are essential things? Animals okay. are lame. <laughs> We've established, We've established this. Yeah, okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's a new theme for the podcast. <laughs> we could change our motto. Animals are lame. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, so these bacteria, do they make all of the essential no, they amino just, acids? No, yeah, it's amazing. They just right. make the 10 essential amino acids. They get the, the other 10 from their insect hosts. Huh. And they make all 10. There's, and they make all 10. Actually, well... In cicadas, there's two endosymbionts. There's oh. two bacteria. One's called Sulcia. One's called Hodgkinia. Sulcia makes eight of the ten essential amino acids, and Hodgkinia makes two of the ten essential amino acids. So eight plus two is ten. Right? You're, you're still with me? It's advanced math tonight. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then the, the host makes the other ten. So together they make 20. But, so each one requires the other 
in order to build all of the proteins in each of those organisms. Huh. Awesome. And, and so how do the amino acids that the bacteria make get trafficked out to the host? And I don't vice know. versa, how do they, once from the host, get I don't know. Oh, okay. That, that I mean, could be our other theme. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, there's a, we don't, I mean, you don't really know. There's a lot of, I mean, in some insects, not cicadas actually, in some insects, there's, there's been an expansion of amino acid transporters at uh-huh. this interface between uh-huh. the, the bacteria and the host, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And I mean, there must be pumped in and out, but that's, that's really all I can tell you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> Sorry. Still plenty of things Sorry to, to disappoint you. So no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited, in fact. Yeah. Okay. So, so what is really intriguing, I think, to us as a big biology concept here is the endosymbiosis itself, that these bacteria are sort of intertwined, that in a sense now this is one organism that's kind of comprised of two different things. It's very difficult to separate them. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's impossible, right? If no. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to, to survive. You can cicadas. separate them, but you, so a couple of things. One, one possibility is that if you're a cicada, you could choose to eat a more balanced diet. Um, it's just not so easy. <laughs> it's just not so easy. But it's in the ground. It's happened in a couple related insects. Very, <clears throat> excuse me. Very rarely, insects have discovered that if you so if you you know if you stick your stick your poker into foam, it's, there's just like sucking sprite, right? It's terrible. Mm-hmm. But if you if you pull it back just a little ways, you can actually get into the cell, the cytoplasm. And so there's there's insects that have figured out you can you can suck the contents of the cytoplasm, and that's a much richer diet. Yeah, yeah. And they lose the bacteria. Huh. Um, the bacteria can also be replaced, right? So if you're the host, if you're the insect, and you have two, these two critters in you, and they make this stuff, you, you're right, you can't lose them. But you could kick one out and replace it with something else, um, and then everything's fine. It's not fine for the bacteria. The bacteria is now extinct. Okay. But the new thing that's come on board can replace that function, and that's happened Many times, actually. Okay. So this is, this is symbiosis, so it's you know, two, two forms of life living together. Has anybody worked on the immunology here? I mean, yeah, to what extent do we bit. really know that it's symbiotic? Because that kind of conveys that everybody's happy, they hold hands, one group gets this, the other group gets that. But yeah. is there an immune response? And especially when it comes to Hodgkinia, we haven't talked about some of the stuff in your research that maybe at some point it's in the host interest to start thinking about an immune defense because yeah. of things that people will get to, but... I mean, it, it, any immunology at all on this? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, so so the, the weird thing about this is, yeah, there there has been some work. the the problem with the problem with the things that I study is that they've been inside these insects for so long that they've lost. They don't make any of the immune stimulating compounds anymore. Hmm, okay. Right? Some of these things are they've been in the insects so long that they there's still a bacterial cell in there. We can see it in the microscope. But the boundary of that bacterial cell must be made by the host. Okay. Right? So it's not like a normal bacterial envelope anymore where you have, you know, these these compounds on the on the outside of most bacterial cells that will say, Hey, you know I'm a bacteria. I'm a bacteria. Yeah. They've been lost a long time ago. Okay. So the host totally doesn't recognize it as a, as it, a bacterium. It, I don't know. I don't think in, in these cases, in, in the case of the cicada, they're so far gone. They're so integrated that the, the boundary of these cells is actually defined by the host. Huh. So it's, I mean, it, it kind of knows it's, it knows it's special. It knows it has to get into every, into, into every egg, but it, I don't think it recognizes it immunologically. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. So, so I want to maybe approach now this weirdness that you said you found in, in some of the cicada, the Chilean cicada. cicada. And, and I think that has to do with lineages of Hodgkinia and their genomes. It does. And so can, can we kind of unpack that? <laughs> we can. I've never done this. I've actually never talked about this without visuals. So you, you guys are, <laughs> right. this is a little bit. So 
So yeah, so what we you, I, you can wave your hands, but you mentioned yeah, yeah. yeah I'm trying. You mentioned that um, why do we work in Chile when we just could work anywhere in the United States? Um, because what what JT found this, the student that was working on it was so when we sequence we took one insect from Chile and we sequence the bacterial genomes and we expect a certain result and that result is we get two bacterial genomes and we know we're done sequencing Solcia and Hodgkinia. Solcia and Hodgkinia. Okay. And we know we're done sequ se sequencing Solcia when we can close the genome into a circle because bacterial genomes are circular. So we know we're done. Um, JT finished Celsius, that was easy, and he went on, he's tried Hodgkinia, and he tried to finish it into a circle, and he couldn't get a circle. And he came to me and he's like, this is my best JT. Sorry, JT. <laughs> I don't think there's one genome in there. Oh, really? That's, that's interesting. Go back and fix your mistake. <laughs> and he went back, and like two months later, and he's like, I don't, really don't think. There's one. It's like, dude, I've, I'm, I'm the professor. I know. I'm telling you. Go. I didn't really say it like that. I was like, Something's wrong. And eventually, he did, a bunch of these he did a bunch of experiments, and he's like, there are two circular, not one, but two genomes in here for a single bacterial species, and that doesn't happen. I mean, it just, it never happened. So we, so, so basically, long story short, because I can't do this, and I can't explain it with my hands anymore, <laughs> but one bacterial genome, one lineage, one collection of genomes that was housed in a single bacteria, the genome had split into two, so there were now two versions of Hodgkinia. They were clearly different from each other, two versions of Hodgkinia in the same insect. So that... And they, they made complementary proteins, right? So I told you before, you might remember if you're awake, Hodgkinia makes two essential amino acids. And those pathways to make those amino acids are broken into several steps. And in these two new Hodgkinia species, those steps have been distributed in the two different versions. So you needed both versions to complete that step to make that essential amino acid that Hodgkinia made before. So that from the, from the host's perspective, from the cicada's perspective, it now had three endosymbionts, right? Because there were two different cell types. There were two different Hodgkinia cell types doing different things, and there was the same Solcia uh, cell doing the same thing. So there were, instead of one Solcia, one Hodgkinia, there was one Solcia and two Hodgkinia. And that, it, I mean, that's, it took us years to figure out, basically. It was, it was so unexpected that we couldn't really understand it. And JT really, yeah, I mean, he, he just hammered on it and figured it out. And that discovery comes from the the one that your colleague had discovered, which was from Chile. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah. she, she sent it to us, not knowing this, of course, but yeah, but yeah it, was, that was, it just happened to be in a Chilean, this happened in a Chilean cicada. Right, and now what you found in the other Chilean cicadas is even more... Right, so we, yeah, so we found this thing. We, had, we didn't have many insects to work with, right? She had just gone sampling there because she samples all around the world, and we had two insects. We, we used one insect to do the genomes. We used the other insect to, do the, to visualize the genomes, to look, do the microscopy, and then we were out. So we had nothing left. And so we had to go get more. So we went down there, and a postdoc in my lab, uh, Piotr Lukasek, who did most of this, he, he really spearheaded this. He went down there. He's a crazy guy in the field. He's really, he just, basically, field work for cicadas is you drive around in the summer with the windows open, and you, <laughs> and you listen, and you stop, and you try to catch the thing. Um, so it's kind of fun. You better like your co-pilot, because it's a lot of talking, a lot of driving, a lot of talking. So we drove, around, we drove around Chile for years, and we got rest of the species. And so what we found was, basically, there, was, there were species with the normal situation, one Hodgkinia. There were species with two, three, four, five, six, and probably seven. Wow. 
So this splitting has been going on all, I mean, probably for the last four or five million years in Chile in some groups and not others, but some of them have now split, you know, six times. There's seven, seven lineages of Hodgkinia and each one has unique genes, right? So the, the host is having to contain ever, this ever-growing group of little, little children. <laughs> and so, so one, one consequence is that when mothers are having offspring and making their eggs, they've got to get all of those cell types or all of those Hodgkinia species yeah. into their offspring. That's right. So how, how do they do that? They need, the moms need to make a bigger room, basically, and that's what they do. Uh-huh. So we, we've counted this, and as the, as the number of Hodgkinia lineages increase, as the number of Hodgkinia cell types increases, the space that the mom gives in each egg increases just for Hodgkinia. So what happens is it actually crowds out the other. So there seems to be more or less a defined amount of space that the bacteria can have in the egg. Like that's what, that's what mom gives it. So there's a certain volume. And we can see as Hodgkinia splits, it starts to crowd out. Like there's this little ring of the other bacteria on the outside. Huh. And, and, and it's a, the mom is making more space to accommodate the splitting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Super interesting. And where where does this start? I mean, why, why does Hodgkinia do this thing that at least the other bacteria, Salsia, doesn't do? Here comes another I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Basket. I don't know, but um, we have some ideas. Uh, you know, basically, it's it's a little bit technical, but we think that we think that uh, Hodgkinia is basically kind of burning itself out. It, it, the number of mutations entering, the number of mistakes. Hodgkinia is making when it when it replicates its genome is much much more. We know that it's much more than its companion symbiont, and we think this is a process of basically the accumulation of mistakes in the genome that that make it such that you get broken copies in one cell or the other. And so if you get stuck in that situation, you have to you now have to have two copies where you used to have one, or two mm-hmm. cells where you used to have one. So it's kind of a I mean, mutational meltdown is, yeah. is very and, slow. And so so what's the ultimate outcome of this? What, what's the fate of these? Well, the fate, I mean, so the fate seems to be, so we think it's related, related to this mutation thing, this mistaking, making mistakes when you replicate the genomes. If you look in the, lo- we think it's related to host life cycle, right? So if you look at the longest lived cicadas, these periodical cicadas, these have not one or seven Hodgkinia types in them. They have 45 Wow. Or something like that. It's just we can't even count. We've we started we started counting, and the graduate student working on that basically said, "I'm going to quit <laughs> <laughs> because it's really technical work." And so he's got it like Matt Campbell is his name. He's got it out to like 27 to 45 different. It's a nightmare. It's a technical nightmare. But so that the outcome is it just gets totally insane. And then more recently, we've discovered we in collaboration with the Japanese group. Mostly the Japanese group. Just, we actually knew about this, but we couldn't figure it out. Um, so the Japanese group figured it out. We, we, were on the, we collaborated with them on it. But basically what happens is the, this Hodgkinia, this thing that's splitting and splitting and splitting, has been replaced by a, an Ophiocordyceps fungi. And Ophiocordyceps fungi are sort of famous because they're these zombie. They make yeah, zombie, zombie insects. Ants, yeah. yeah, so they, like, they have this really weird... Normally their life cycle is they infect an insect... And then they usually change its behavior, they alter its mind, and they make it like crawl to the top of a tree or high. And then it kills the insect, and it sometimes, like in ants, it'll make them bite the, the branch, the leaf they're on, and then they die with their, with like bitten into this thing, so they have to stay there. And then the fungus grows this fruiting body that rains down spores on the rest of the ants, or also happens in cicadas. Um, so they're normally not great if you get, <laughs> if you're an insect. <laughs> 
they're normally not great, but they have a. If you look at the life cycle of cordyceps fungi, they have a. They have an intracellular phase, so they're in. They have a yeast growth form, and they grow inside of cells. And it seems that the cicadas have chosen to somehow take over this ophiocordyceps in this yeast growth form and kick out Hodgkinia rather than maintain this mess, this mm. hot mess of Hodgkinia. That's, mm. that's our interpretation. And I think it's consistent with most of the data. Some people don't agree with it. But that's, my interpretation is that it's, Hodgkinia is basically spiraling out of control. And, and many cicadas, in fact, not just this one or three Japanese cicadas, um, but in many cases, this is, has, has been kicked out and replaced by a, a cordyceps fungi. Yeah. fungus. So you, yeah. you talked in some of your papers about the this at least this one symbiote leading the the host and the symbiote down the path of extinction. Is are there any documented cases of that, or nice. is this a sort of? I mean, it's going to be something difficult to yeah, find. But is there any evidence prove. that it's happening, yeah. or does it seem to be that the saving grace is infection with this other? Yeah, fungus? it seems to be. So we we see replacement. You know, even though there's like even though they're really integrated at the cell biological level, right? Like these symbionts are, their membranes are made by the host in some cases, and they're really, really integrated. They can still get replaced. The host can still find a way to kick them out and get a new one. And that's happened in lots of different insects. Hmm. And I think, I think, yeah, if you, I'm, when, I, when I say extinction, I'm talking about really long periods of time, yeah. right? Not yeah. like tomorrow, but right. um, it's, it's, a, it's a ratchet that you can't really walk back from. And so, in general, I think that what's happened in cicadas is that re they've replaced Hodgkinia many times, actually. We've, we've now sampled, um, the paper's not published, but we've sampled all around the world, and it's, it's happened quite a bit. Huh. And you, you're saying kicked out. Is, that, is it an active process, or is it, it's probably not clear? It's, we, don't, we, we haven't captured it in that phase. Okay. My guess is that you get, a, you get maybe a co-infection, but it's strong enough, there's strong enough selection to just, the... the the insects that have this new fungus are, are just fitter. They grow faster, and they're able to huh. just eventually. I mean, presumably this fungus is around all the time. It's what's around the, all the time. What's the magical the switch place. point where I don't know. Hodgkinia gets diverse enough that all of a sudden oh, the fungus super interesting. wins? Yeah, yeah. Because it, huh. it's, a, it's a massive switch, right? You switch from, like, being infected with a, with a parasite to just switching all of a sudden to being now you need it or now you're now you're dependent on it yeah know? so it's, that's mm -hmm. that's really cool. Yeah. And I don't I wish we could understand it, but it happens too fast for us to see it in most cases. So I want to sort of shift gears a little bit, and let's let's step back just from cicadas and bacteriomes and talk about Man. symbioses. Sorry, uh, <laughs> symbioses a little more broadly. So so you've studied uh, sort of broader patterns of evolutionary change in symbiotic microbes. So when they when they take up residence in other animals, uh, systematic things happen to the way their their genomes are structured and the size of their genome. So so what happens over evolutionary time when a lineage becomes a symbiont. Yeah, so if you, this has happened a lot in, in biology. So if, you have, if you're a bacteria living in the world, the, one, the ones that make you sick or the ones that are in the soil, um, they, they tend to have big genomes. You know, they'll have genomes with 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 genes. And, and that's big for a bacteria. We have 22,000 genes, just to give you some perspective on the count. Um, but when, when you switch from being an, a bacteria that lives out in the environment to something that only lives in an, in, an insect cell or any other cell, uh, what happens is you lose genes pretty quickly. So you can go from 3,000 or 4,000 to 120 in the, some of the cases that we work on. Hodgkinia, when it starts out, has about 140 genes. So n that's not very many. That's not, that's not very many genes at all. You can't, you can't be an organism free living in the environment with 140 genes. You just can't. You can't do it. So... 
Um, the main thing is genome reduction, gene loss. That, is, that happens over and over and over again, no matter the source of the bacteria, no matter the host. Mm -hmm. But when you become an endosymbiont, something living inside of another cell, your genome erodes really quickly. And, and so, so what, what is the, the sort of time course of that? Is it like massive loss right at the very beginning yeah, and I then mean, a long over, decline after that? Or is it just right. sort of a linear yeah, no, shot it's, down? It's, 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 it's like steep, off a cliff. Yeah, it's steep and then it, and then it settles out. And, and how long is this part like? I mean, we don't you really know. know a million years? No, or? no, more like 10, 20,000 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, really So we can, really we, short. We, we have captured, we and others, um, mostly others, but we've captured a few cases of something that just transitioned. And you can see a bunch of different signatures. And we've, we've, we, other people have put better dates on it than we have, but it's some, somewhere around the 10 to 20, which 10 to 20,000 years seems like a long time, but in evolutionary terms, it's not. So cicadas are 200 million years old or something like that. And so Hodgkinia and Solcia have been there for at least 200 million years. So uh -huh. 10,000 is not very many, just to give you a sense. All right. Yeah. And, and so you're using this, these, well, so set the stage. So 200 million years is actually still pretty young compared to some yeah. other symbionts that we right. know of, so mitochondria and chloroplasts. Yeah. And, and you've been using what you're doing on, on insects and Hodgkinia to give insight into the evolutionary dynamics of what happened what, more than a billion years ago when our cells acquired uh, mitochondria and chloroplasts. So, so maybe can you talk about what mitochondria and chloroplasts are and sort of the timing of that? Mitochondria, yeah, sure. Uh, Chlor they're neat. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they're, that's they're it, important. we're done. So. Yeah. Uh, so do you, do you all know what, what mitochondria are? What are they? The powerhouse of the cell, exactly. So, exactly. I love it. I don't know who wrote that down in a textbook somewhere. <laughs> they sh I hope they get royalties. It's amazing. That is like the thing. They are the powerhouse of the cell, right? Mitochondria are the little entities in your cells and all your cells. Their, their, their main job is to, is to make ATP, right? The chemical energy for the cell. But um, they're also, some of you might know this, some of you might not. They're also very old captured bacteria. That's really what they are. They're, they're, they're just really old endosymbionts. And the, the, the dates are hard to know. 1.8 billion years is a, is a common, so 1,800 million years, 1.8 billion years is a common guess for mitochondria. Um, the chloroplasts are the same thing in plants. So photosynthetic eukaryotes, or plants, photosynthetic algae, things like that, have another captured bacteria. It's called the chloroplast, but it's maybe about 1.2 billion years old. I, I don't really know, that's, that's the best estimate that I can see from reading the literature. So they're pretty old. And, and I think the thing, I mean, so what we study, I would say, is one of the closest parallels to these, right? They've lost a similar number of genes. They are similar, similarly integrated with their host cells. Um, I don't want to oversell it. It's not the same thing. I mean, the mitochondria is really important and special because it, it gave rise to all the eukaryotes. I mean, it, it is the thing that gave rise to It's really important, and it happened once. So um, all of a sudden, animals are important. That's what, well, and not just, as, not. as vectors for carrying <laughs> right. mitochondria, they're yeah. important. But, uh, yeah, no, some animals are interesting. Uh, but their mitochondria tend to be a little bit more interesting, honestly. Um, so, yeah, so, so what we study, I mean, the reason we think it's interesting is because, because of all the parallels. So mitochondria are hard to study for a couple of reasons. One of them is they're 1.8 billion years old. The other one is they'd only happened once. And so the things, that, the things that we study, I mean, they're not exactly the same, but they're, they're a close enough parallel that it seems, it seems worthwhile. Like so so what, we can, what we can say is we can draw generalities about really old endosymbiosis that were, 
you know, a little bit clear with mitochondria and chloroplasts, but now I think become much more clear if you add in a few more examples. And so what we have are many newer examples, and that, that's why I think, that, that to me is the most exciting thing about our, about our work. So do you know besides the chloroplast and the mitochondria, what's the next oldest symbiosis that's known? Uh, no. I mean, so I, when I start my professional talks, I often talk about the three most important endosymbioses. Okay, we'll go with the, that. The mitochondria, the chloroplasts, and the sat-feeding insects. Mm. Um, may, that might be biased. Am I just surprised? A little, I don't um, know. Just a so there's, there's, there's lots of, I mean, there's the, 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 the reason that, um, but they might not be the, the next oldest, but they might be the next oldest that are transmitted in the same way, and that's important. So, so they're transmitted very faithfully, mother to child, every single generation, strictly vertically. There's no horizontal transmission. Mm. And that makes a big difference in the evolution of the relationship. There are things that are probably older. Um, a buscular mycorrhizal fungi or, or symbiosis, form symbiosis with plants right. at the plant roots. Those might be older, but they're transmitted in different ways. They're mm -hmm. exposed to the environment. So there's similarities, but there's more differences, I would say, than okay. these things are only inside cells. They're only transmitted down the down the lineage and that makes them sort of the probably the closest parallel that are that are newer Last question on this front, and then maybe let's uh, yeah. start wrapping it yep. up. Um, if you were to project out, you know, so you've had 200 million years of evolution in this system, you know, if you let it spin out to a billion years, what what, what does it look like after an additional 800 million years of evolution? <laughs> um, this is crystal ball stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think, I mean, assuming there's still trees <laughs> uh, and and plants, I'm not I'm not convinced of that to be honest. <laughs> but assuming that the world looks relatively similar. And they're still vascular plants. Um, I think it looks pretty similar, but I think the the players have changed. Maybe I think some players are still there. Some of the endosymbionts are still there. They're really reduced. There's a lot of integration with the host, but some of them have been replaced in that much time, many mm -hmm. many times. Mm -hmm. that, okay. That's what that's what I would think. That's right. what I would, think. would you cool. push it far enough to say that we end up with another mitochondria chloroplasts type of organelle? That doesn't That it's I, that intimate that it's just this special I mean, amino acid generating machine? Yeah, I mean, it, that gets like. So, so one of the things that people ask me a lot is, oh, what, is what you study an organelle now, or is it a, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it becomes, in some ways, it's interesting, and then it quickly becomes boring because then people just argue about definitions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that's the, so I, I don't know. I mean, but I, I think. We've, at least in life as we know it, we've passed this, we, we've had two sort of singularities, and they're the mitochondria and the chloroplast, and the rest is just, there's similarities, but it's kind of filling in that. Th those were special. Okay. I don't think okay. it's happening again. All right, we, we always end episodes with the, uh, are we ready for the big one? Oh, yeah. Okay. What's your big, what's your big crazy idea? Either the next wild experiment, <laughs> other far-flung part of the globe you want to go to, or the next step in the your questions um i mean this is I, this might be disappointing but i i'm interested in the details um like this thing i talked about where where this they have this endosymbiont living inside of a host cell and you have you can see it in the pictures we can take pictures of it and we know there's a bacterial cytoplasm right there's the inside of a bacterial cell but the outside is defined by the host and that is really interesting to me and i want to understand that so that's, we've spent, most of the work in the last five years in the lab has been di directed at that. 
although it's not published yet because it's hard yeah, and slow. Yeah. But yeah. that's I'm I'm really I'm interested in the, those fine details. Well, that, it's a detail, work. but I, I keep plugging last episodes. But you know, we had a, a philosopher immunologist on a long time ago named Fred Tauber from mm-hmm. Tufts, mm-hmm. and you know, the foundations of immunology, especially the vertebrate kind come from the self-non-self distinction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's written multiple books about it's not so easy to, to distinguish no. self, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, on, on a kind of big philosophical, almost philosophical level. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it might be technical, no, but it, at the no, same it's time... No, it's, it's technical, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like, like these, you have these two organisms, they're, they're being integrated into a single thing, sort of. Right. And that, that, I find that interesting, yeah. Oh, so I, we're awesome. trying to understand the details. In a way, cicadas and the bacteria that live inside them aren't really different things. It depends on how you look at them. You can find bacterial genes in bacteria and cicada genes in cicadas, but the bacteria have also offloaded a lot of their genes and a lot of their life functions in general to cicadas. So it's hard to tell where the bacteria starts and the insect ends. The whole idea of bacteria interweaving themselves with another organism might seem like some sort of science fiction plot point but this same sort of event led to all the plants and animals that we see today. Mitochondria and chloroplasts started out as foreign bacteria living inside other cells. Over millions and millions of years, they morphed into chimeras. Not the lion, goat, serpent, monsters from Greek mythology, but blended creatures nonetheless. That relationship is arguably one of the most important events in the history of life, but it's hard to study because it happened so long ago. John's research gives us a chance to watch a similar process in action now. And as we'll learn from Rob Dunn on our next episode, symbioses like John's are probably not evolutionary one-offs. There's so many microbes on and in us, on which we rely for our digestion, immune defense, and even brain development, that it should make us question who we are. First off, a big thank you to the Missoula Insectarium for letting us use their space to host this live event. This episode was part of their Bugs and Brews series, which they hold on the fourth Tuesday of every month. Check them out if you're in Missoula. Their website is at www.missoulabutterflyhouse.org. And if you like our show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page. All you have to do is visit patreon.com bigbio and become a patron. Those donations are super helpful. They let us organize live events like the one you just heard. But as a patron, you'll also get access to bonus material, including an extra episode we recorded in Washington, D.C. a few weeks back. Matt Blois helped write and produce this podcast. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage our social media channels, and Steve Lane manages the website, www.bigbiology.org. And thank you to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. The cicada sounds you heard on this show are from cicadamania.com and John R. Cooley at the University of Connecticut.